0: Well, we got some sad news this week. It was really sad. And, and I do not have reference to the fact that our sister Gladys Simmons passed this week. It's always sad when someone dies, but in the case of our sister Gladys Simmons, she, she died as a Christian. She died with hope. And as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, we do not need to sorrow as others who have no hope. Miss Gladys had been a shut-in for several years and, and had not been able to attend services, but she had served the Lord in her life, and so we believe that she died in hope. And that's a comfort, and that's, the, that's a very important thing. And so although it's sad, it's, it's, not, it's not sad in the same sort of a sense of someone who dies outside of the Lord. That's not the sad news, though, that I have reference to. The sad news that I have reference to is that we received a call this week from a friend who told of the fact that their grandson and son, who had been away to college for two or three years, had just announced to them that he no longer believes in God. I'll tell you, that's devastating news. That's not just sad news. That's devastating news. And sadly, that's not a unique situation. We have had some of our family members tell us the same sort of thing gone off to college, announced that they no longer believe in God. Some of you have told me that you've had family members who have done likewise. That is sad. That is scary to know that our young people are losing all faith in God, simply denying now that there even is a God in heaven. We have some of our young people who are heading off to college this week and others who will follow them not long after. And so this morning, I want to address a lesson to them specifically. The rest of you all can listen, and I hope that you will. But we especially want to address a lesson to our young people. We want you to never doubt your faith in God. As time goes on, and in different circumstances where you will be, we want your faith in God to be strong. And so this morning we want to talk about reasons why to believe in God. Reasons why we should believe in God. We want to review uh, the, the reasons for our faith. And I want to suggest to you that our faith is good and sound and logical and reasonable. In fact, if you considered all the evidence and then said that you don't believe in God the statement of Psalms 14 verse 1 would be applicable to you. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. If you can look at all of the evidence and then come away with the idea that there is no God in heaven, that's a foolish thing. A person who says that has not carefully considered and dealt with the evidence. And so we want to spend a few moments this morning for the benefit of our young people, especially those who are going off to college We want your faith in God to be so strong that it couldn't be shaken no matter what happened. You're never going to be like one of those young people who have been saying, I no longer believe in God. The evidence is overwhelming. We'll talk about it here in just a minute. We stop to say thank you for being present on this hot but beautiful Lord's Day morning in Middle Tennessee. We're glad that you've come to join us in this period of worship. We look forward to our time together. We're encouraged by... These joint efforts in worship and Bible study, they help us tremendously, and certainly that has to be according to God's design. But more than anything else, we cherish the opportunity to glorify our our Creator, uh, the one who made us. We want to offer all honor and glory to Him. We thank you for being here to be a part of it. And to our many visitors this morning, we say thanks, and please come again every time that you have a chance to be here. What arguments would you list for believing in God. Well, I think the, the, the very first one that we will mention is that every effect demands an adequate cause. So when you think about effect, that is, there's something here, there's something, this is something. And so there must be a cause that caused this something to be. For every effect, there must be an adequate cause. If we wanted to get fancy, we would refer to this as the cosmological argument for God, but it is simply the idea of cause and effect. If there is something here that we see, there must have been something that caused it to be so. If I went out in my, my driveway this morning to get into the car to come to worship services and I had a flat tire, thankfully I did not, but if I went out in the driveway and I saw a flat tire on my car, I would automatically think something has caused that flat tire Very likely I picked up a nail or a screw uh, in the highway and it has punctured my tire and slowly all the air has escaped. Or it could be, you know, those rascally kids in the neighborhood who goes around and lets air out of tires so people have to change their tire before they can go to work or worship in the morning. Could be one of those kids that let... But the fact that the tire is flat tells me there must have something caused that to be. That doesn't normally happen. I go out day after day after day after day and my tires are aired up. Today the tire's flat. Something caused that to be cause and effect. We reason that way all the time. So apply that simple premise to our existence in this physical universe. Consider with me the physical universe for a moment. There are only three options as to how the physical universe is here It's an obvious effect, right? We exist, we live, we dwell in the physical universe. This physical universe is here. And so there must be some reason to explain how it got here. One possibility is that the physical universe is eternal. The material universe has always existed. Matter has always existed. That's one option. A second option is it's not eternal. It hadn't always been here, but it created itself. The universe created itself. So it either has always been or it created itself. And best as I can tell, there's only one other potential option for the explanation of the physical universe. And that is that it was created by some force outside of itself and superior to it. And so let's just consider those options for a minute. For instance, consider the idea that the universe is eternal, The fact of the matter is is that even scientists acknowledge that our physical universe has not always been here. Dr. Robert Jastrow wrote a book called Until the Sun Dies. Jastrow is himself an astronomer. He's a planetary physicist. He's a NASA scientist. And he's not speaking from a biblical or spiritual perspective when he says this in his book. Quote, as a result of the most recent discoveries we can say with a fair degree of confidence that our universe has not existed forever that it began abruptly without apparent cause in a blinding event that defies scientific explanation so here's a guy he's not speaking from a from a spiritual perspective whatsoever but but he's just from a scientific standpoint acknowledging that our universe is not eternal, it hasn't always been here, that it had a beginning point. In fact, when you hear scientists talk about the age of our universe, now very often they they uh would describe just crazy, outrageous long ages for the universe usually they would try to predict that the universe is something on the order of 20 billion years old. We're not going to argue that right now. I think we could offer plenty of arguments against those long ages uh, for the universe. But just the very fact that they tell you how old they think the universe is, is an indication of the fact that they are acknowledging that the universe hasn't been here forever. That it had a beginning point. And so, in regards to this first option, the universe is eternal, we would say that no, scientists don't believe that. That is not the case. That is not true. Well, what about the idea that the universe created itself? Could the universe have created itself? Now, I know that you know that nothing comes from nothing, right? That things can't make themselves. Nothing comes from nothing. To illustrate that a little bit, what if I told you that earlier this week or earlier last week, I was here in this auditorium room and there was nothing sitting right there in front of me. And suddenly, out of thin air, that communion table materialized. It just came into existence. Just out of... Just as we say, out of thin air, it materialized. And I'm very adamant in in trying to persuade you that that is the case. This communion table came out of nothing. What would you think? Well, you would think that I had absolutely lost my mind, right? Because we all know, we have a very basic understanding of the fact that nothing comes from nothing. That's there, and there had to have been something that caused it to be there, Nothing comes from nothing. And so this idea that the whole universe, as vast as it is, came about out of nothing, again, even from just common sense or even scientific analysis, we'd say that can't be true. And that being the case, we're only left with the third option. Almost by a process of elimination, we are forced to the conclusion That our physical universe was created by some force outside of itself and superior to it. Something that existed before our universe existed. Something of a completely different nature than the physical universe that we live in. That uncaused first cause is God. There must be some uncaused first cause. We have an answer to that question. The unbeliever does not, but we have an answer to the question, what is the uncaused first cause? It has to be God. The Scriptures make this kind of argument. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 4, it says, Every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. This is really that cosmological argument. This is really the cause and effect argument. So you're driving down the road. Maybe this is a road that you have traveled before. But it's been a long time since you've been down this road. And as you're going down this road, up on the hillside there, you notice a house that wasn't there before. A nice new house sitting up on that little rise off to the side of the road. What do you think when you see that house? You think, that house just materialized there. That house just happened on its own. No. That thought never crosses your mind, does it? What you do instead, you say, I wonder who built that house, right? Because, you know, somebody built that house. I wonder who built that house. That's a pretty house. That's a beautiful setting. I wonder who built that house. Every house is built by some man. We all know that. But he that built all things is God. Cause and effect. In the text that Ethan read for us earlier from Romans chapter 1, Paul says that if you can look at all the things that God made and say there is no God... That's just crazy, and there's no excuse for that kind of thinking. In Romans 1, beginning verse 18, read it again. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." Notice, he speaks of the invisible things of God, but he says the invisible things of God are clearly seen and understood by the things that he made. You can't see God, but you can see what he made. And it ought to be very clear, when you look at creation, it ought to be very clear, there has to be a powerful force that created these things. In fact, if you can look at all that God created and say there is no God, Paul says... that. You are without excuse. That's inexcusable. That doesn't even make sense. That's crazy. To see all that there is and then say there is no God. And so, again, our first argument as to the existence of God has to do with cause and effect. Cause and effect reasoning. Let me suggest to you that another type of argument for the existence of God is that design demands a designer and what we're saying here is not only does the physical universe exist and all the things that are in it but within that universe there are things that demonstrate incredible design you know engineers sit behind computers these days and work tirelessly trying to design one tiny little piece of machinery or one tiny little gadget of some sort or another because if you're going to make something and it's going to function, it needs to be designed. But if you see something that has design in it, design demands a designer, right? If there's something that shows evident signs of design, someone made that. You all have heard of the great scientist Isaac Newton. Sir Isaac Newton, he was uh, an English physicist and astronomer. He was also uh, a really famous mathematician. Probably we're most familiar with Sir Isaac Newton because he sort of quantified and identified the very basic laws of gravity. Did you know that Isaac Newton is also, and I I don't think this is the right terminology to use, he's not the inventor of calculus, but he was the first to come up with the theory of calculus that we still study today and so when you guys go off to college and you're studying calculus and you're having trouble with that because it's kind of a complicated math subject if you have any trouble with calculus blame Sir Isaac Newton he's the one that that came up with calculus. Sir Isaac Newton was also a believer in God and the story that you've probably heard before the story is told that he had someone that he knew who was very mechanically inclined, he had him construct a desktop model of our solar system with the sun and the planets rotating around the sun. And it was, it was mechanized to the extent that you could turn a crank and the planets would actually orbit this, this sun in this model. Newton had a friend who came into his study And he saw this thing and he was immediately attracted to it and he turned the crank and the planets revolved around the sun and he said, this is amazing, this is exquisite. Who made this thing? And Newton said, nobody made it. Nobody made it, it just appeared there. And his friend said, do you think me some sort of fool? Obviously someone made this. I want to know who made this thing. Newton said again, no one made it, it just popped up there. And his friend began to get angry. And then Newton drove the point home. He said, listen, he said, you won't believe me when I tell you that this puny model of our solar system was, was, you wouldn't believe me when I said it just happened. But you want me to believe that, uh, that the real solar system, of which this is just a very inadequate replica, you want me to believe that the whole solar system just created itself. The story is that that unbelieving friend was convinced by the argument and came to believe in God as well. The whole argument there is design demands a designer. If you see something with obvious design, you know someone must have done it. Let me take you back to our communion table argument again. I want to change my story now. I was in here the other day all by myself in this big room. And there was I'm, I'm I'm going to back up on my story here. there was a pile of lumber laying there, and it was it was the the lumber was there I acknowledge the lumber was there, but it just sort of fashioned itself into that finished product that you see standing there today. Would you believe that well that story is just as crazy as the previous one right that it that it materialized out of thin air you didn't believe that, and you wouldn't believe me if I told you that that Piece of furniture with the design that is evident in it just appeared on it. So you wouldn't believe that. You would think, I was crazy to try and make an argument like that. That being the case, how could anyone believe that our physical universe and all the things in it just happened? It doesn't even make sense. There's too much design evident in it. Let me talk to you just a little bit about some of the design in our physical universe. Our sun. Our sun is a million times bigger than planet Earth, but it's just a star. In fact, it's a fairly average star as stars go. Nothing particularly exceptional about it. We're told that in the galaxy where we live, we live in the Milky Way galaxy. And estimates have long been that there's a hundred billion stars like our sun in the Milky Way. Recently, scientists have begun to say, I think we've underestimated. There may be as many as 400 billion stars in the Milky Way. But the Milky Way, of course, is just one galaxy. Uh, There are estimated to be somewhere between 100 and 200 billion galaxies. And God made all of that, and it all works in perfect clockwork precision. How'd that be so? How could that possibly be so? That our universe shows all this intricate work co-working together. It is amazing. Design demands a designer. Think about the sun and planet earth. That's, per, that's a pretty important relationship to us here. We live on planet earth and the sun is vital to our existence here. How far is the sun from the earth? You kids from science class need to know that number, right? 93 million miles. Uh, The sun is 93 million miles from planet Earth. And that just happens to be perfect. Because if we were 5% closer to the sun, we would burn up. Life on Earth would be impossible. If we were 5% farther away from the sun, it would be too cold. Everything would freeze. We'd all die. Life wouldn't be possible if we were just 5% farther away. There's just a tiny little band of distance there wherein life is possible on planet Earth and we just happen to be in that band. Not too close, not too far away, not too hot, not too cold. In fact, scientists even call it the Goldilocks zone. Not too hot, not too cold. We're right in the right spot. How did that happen? God's design. You know, the Earth rotates at approximately 1,000 miles per hour. We think that we're standing still right now, uh, but that's a relative thing. We're actually spinning like crazy at about a thousand miles per hour. We're spinning around. And that's really critical too, right? If we were rotating any slower, you talk about some hot days in August, it would be too hot to live. We would burn up if we were rotating slower. Um, do you know that three-fourths of the earth's surface is covered with water? Three-fourths of the Earth's surface, cover of water. And that's absolutely critical, too, to maintain temperature control on planet Earth. We, do you know our atmosphere, which happens to only be about 50 miles thick, uh, this big Earth only has about a, an atmosphere about 50 miles thick, but that exerts a pressure on us, atmospheric pressure, about 15 pounds per square inch, which actually also happens to be ideal Because if the pressure, if the if the air pressure was any greater, it'd crush us. If it was any less, we'd explode. That seems pretty good to have that kind of air pressure working on us consistently. Again, how is it that all that works together? All of that fits. And so, when we think about just the sun and the stars and the planets. You see God's perfect design in the physical universe. Design demands a designer. Do you get that? That's simple, isn't it? you You don't have to think too hard to understand that principle. Let me just mention our physical bodies. You know that our physical bodies, every one of us, made up of trillions of cells. Every human being has trillions of cells. And in each one of those cells, there's an encoded DNA. The DNA that scientists have come to discover just within the last generation or so and actually have been able to decode the DNA of cells. We understand that in one cell, if you were to try to write out the DNA code in just a single cell, it would fill a volume of books about the size of a thousand encyclopedias. The human nervous system, the brain and, the human brain and nervous system is by all considered to be the most complex arrangement of matter in the entire universe. How did that happen? How did that happen to be so? I know many of you here know that we've been dealing with some serious illness with Gigi at home. She's been pretty sick. She's doing better, thankfully, but she's been pretty sick. And her sickness is related to something as simple as she's not swallowing right. And when she swallows, instead of her food going down in her stomach, some of it's getting into her lungs. did a little reading about how that's supposed to work, and hers is not working exactly right. So when you swallow... You initiate that process. You choose to swallow. I need to swallow. I'm eating food. I need to swallow. Or maybe I've just got saliva in my mouth. I need to swallow. So you consciously initiate the act of swallowing. But when you do that, a couple of other things happen automatically that are completely not controlled by you. They just happen. Your epiglottis, which is kind of like a flap in the throat, closes and it covers your windpipe so that your food or drink can't go down into your lungs, the epiglottis closes and the muscles of the esophagus force the food down into the stomach. But you don't have any control over that. It does that all on its own. And it has to. It has to do that because if it doesn't do that, then you're going to get sick like Miss Gigi's been sick. Design. Intricate design. Who designed it? Design demands a designer. There must be some designer who made that so. How is it so? Well, of course, we understand that God is that designer. In Psalm 139, verse 14, the psalmist said, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. And again, anybody who's reasonable at all, who would look and see... Not only the existence of things in our universe, but the, the amazing design of things that are in our universe. And then come away saying there is no God. That's just not, that's not sensible. That doesn't make any sense at all. Finally, let me suggest to you that we know there's a God because we can observe man's basic moral nature and his inclination to worship. What about this moral nature that exists in Man. It's sort of a sixth sense that we have, a, an understanding of basic fair play. Now, we can argue different specifics about what's right and what's wrong, but every human being has a basic sense of fairness and right play. For instance, someone says, hey, that's my seat. I was here first. Well, You were here first. That's your seat, right? Or someone else says, how would you like it if someone did that to you, did to you what you did to me? How would you like that if someone treated you the way you treat? Well, doesn't that doesn't that indicate that everybody understands there are certain things that are right and other things that are wrong? Or how about give me some of your popcorn? You ate some of mine. We we can argue right and wrong, right? But we have a basic sense of what's right and what's fair. You know what's really interesting? Even a hardened criminal expects and even demands that he receive a fair trial, right? He's a desperate, awful, evil criminal. But even he says that he expects to be treated fairly and to get a fair trial. There's just this basic understanding, sort of something in us that, that, that's moral in nature, For instance, in Romans chapter 2, beginning verse 14, Paul said, For when the Gentiles, which have which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. There's a lot to that passage, and we're not going to dive deeply into it, except to stress that there's a law written on the heart. And I think that that's the point that Paul was making here is that man has a basic moral nature about him. There's just something intrinsic in us, this basic moral nature. Uh, How did that get there? How did that get there? You know, animals don't have that moral nature. So for us, when someone gets sick, or infirm. Maybe they have some handicap. Maybe they just get old. What do we do for those people? We take care of them, right? We take care of them. We take care of our sick and our infirm and our aged. We take care of them. Animals don't do that. If an animal gets hurt, it dies. If an animal, if there's, if an animal is weak, other animals eat that animal, Animals don't have a moral nature to them. How do we have this basic moral nature? There's a moral law intrinsic to man, written on the heart. I want to suggest to you that that could only be there because God made it so. A number of years ago, Jacob and I interviewed Dan Barker, who's a pretty famous atheist, uh, and you may have heard of him. He he, he has a, a job... Or his effort is primarily to try to convince people to not believe in God. And we interviewed him on the virtual Bible study a few years back. And we talked about a lot of things. But I remember asking him this question. And he couldn't answer this question. Why do we take care of our sick and our elderly? Because there's no, there's no benefit to us on an evolutionary scale. There's no benefit to us taking care of people who can't take care of themselves. Why would men develop that nature. He really couldn't answer that question. There's no if we're just if we're just here, if there is no God and we just evolved, there's no reason for us to do that. The fact that we do that doesn't even make sense from an evolutionary perspective. But the fact that we do that is an indication that there's something else going on here, right? And there is this law written on the heart, an intrinsic moral nature given to us by God. And then, of course, we just quickly note that men have always been inclined to worship. Wherever civilizations of men have been found and whatever time, they have always been found to be worshiping something. Where did that inclination toward worship come from? Again, the animals don't worship anything. Why do men worship? And it's kind of interesting, by the way, that the oldest tradition of human worship is the worship of one God like we read about in the Bible. And so, there's some review of things we've talked about before. But I want to tell you, the evidence is not only clear, the evidence is overwhelming that there is a God in heaven. And so, you young people, especially those of you who are heading out to go to college, but you other young people who are coming up and are not very far behind them, I just want want to say this to you, never... Never, never let your faith in God be shaken. Because the people who will try to tell you that there is no God are ignoring all the reasonable, logical arguments, and they're just saying that because probably they don't want to submit to God anyway. But do not, no matter what happens, do not let your faith in God be shaken. Hold to that. Don't let anyone ever tell you otherwise, because if they tell you otherwise, they're telling you a lie. We say to you as you head out, good luck in your studies. Good luck as your life progresses, but more than anything else, we say to you, be strong in the service of the Lord. Be faithful to Him. It's the right thing. It's the sensible thing. We will be praying for you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. As we conclude our lesson, we're going to sing a song of invitation. And we'll be asking everybody here, make sure your life is right with that creating God, our creator who made us, who made everything. Is your life right with him? If you need to obey the gospel this morning, we hope you'll make that decision. The simple plan is hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized for the remission of sins. If you're a Christian already, but you've fallen away, come back in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing.